Our scripture reading this morning comes from Acts 17, verses 16 through 34. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. In him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. This is God's word. Amen. Good morning. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, my name is Jonathan Winfrey. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, we're in the middle of a series on Acts. Uh, good to see you uh, with us today. Uh, by way of introduction, um, that that's the uh, that's the first time Austin has led uh, in our church. He said, you know, uh, he he does a counseling or a counselor at a camp in North Carolina during the summer, and he talks to parents, I guess, at the beginning of the week when their kids come, but he doesn't know any of them. And he said, man, that's, that's easy, but when you look out and you know all the people, 
kind of nerve-wracking, you know. So, uh, well done, Austin, with the exception of the shirt. Well done. Um, he, uh, he's bold. He's very bold. I'll give him that. Um, we are in the middle of a series on the book of Acts, uh, which we have been in for, for quite a while, and we've come to a very famous story from the book of Acts. Uh, many have heard it or are familiar with it, even if they're unfamiliar with the Bible. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty famous story. Uh, and what we continue to see is that no place in the known world will go unturned. The gospel is going to continue to go forward. The apostles are going to continue to share and evangelize wherever they possibly can. And I, there's a challenge for us as we consider uh, Acts 17 and its teaching. Uh, and it's, it's this. You, you notice the title, uh, like Paul, like Jesus, compassionately confronting culture. So... We don't confront without compassion, and we don't do compassion without confronting. Uh, There is a tendency in the church or in Christian circles to do one of two things. You tend to find people who want to curse the culture uh, and stay very far away from it and removed from it. Uh, And then you have others who want to coddle the culture, right? Be be very close to it. Be a part of it uh, as as a means, they say at least, to confronting it, but somehow the confrontation never happens. So those two poles are what we're trying to avoid as we uh, find this middle ground in compassionate confrontation. So uh, what I want to do is look at uh, four things. Uh, First, the place. Second, the reasoning or the reason. Why is Paul there? Third, the sermon or the address. I probably should have called it the address because he addresses the Areopagus uh, he doesn't necessarily preach to them. Uh, and then lastly, the lessons. What can we learn? How can we become more like Paul? How can we get to where we are compassionately confronting rather than cursing, as is some of our tendencies, uh, or coddling? Because you may find yourself in one of those two poles or you may find yourself leaning toward one of those two ends even in your own life as you think about uh, the culture that you live in. Okay, So first, the place. Okay, where is Paul? Uh, And we're just going to walk through here, beginning in uh, verse 16 and uh, highlighting to the end of the the chapter. So Paul is left by these guys who travel on. They leave him in Athens, and they say, you know, we'll come back for you. So while he's waiting for them, uh, he he spends, spends some time there. We don't know how much time. But what was Athens? Athens was kind of like all the Ivy League schools... So Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Dartmouth, the list goes on, right? It's all of the Ivy League schools, Cambridge, Oxford, New York City, London, Paris, Los Angeles, all rolled into one place, if you can imagine, okay? The the center of all of that in the known world. So he gets there in verse 17 and 18. So look back uh, there in your worship folder in the, the insert here. I forgot to mention that. I apologize. Uh, One side's the passage, the other side is the outline. So look at 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was talking about Jesus and the resurrection. So he is 
engaging with religious people and irreligious people. Notice, he's in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons. Devout persons is just code for Greeks, uh, Greek-speaking believers. So you've got Jewish people, you've got Greek-speaking believers. They both worship together in the synagogue. Those are the religious. But he's also in the marketplace with the irreligious people. Uh, he, he, he's using not necessarily the same content, but he's engaging in the same fashion. Now, what do they mean by, or what is Paul, uh, what is Luke talking about when he says the marketplace? Uh, it's not as though he's hanging out, you know, outside of the target, and as people come out of the target, you know, he's, he's sharing with them. That's not so much what the Greek word meant. The Greek word for marketplace, the agora, which was this place, again, kind of hard to, kind of hard to conceive of because of the difference in 2016 with, with 2020, uh, 1900 years ago, or whatever it is. The Agora was where you went for news. There were no newspapers. It's where you went to conduct business, financial transactions, and investments. It was the Arts Center. So it was like we have Arts on the Park every year, downtown uh, uh, Winter Haven, and other places. It was, it was like that. So there were artists displaying their, their wares and, 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 uh, and what they were doing. There were philosophers. Uh, there were intellectual elites. And so ideas were debated, right? No television, no magazines, uh, no internet. And so all of this was happening in one place. And he's there. The center of the Greco-Roman world where ideas and thoughts that were forged and that were kind of decided upon even got disseminated throughout all of the known world. And he's right there in the middle of that. Now, verse 18 what is this Epicurean and Stoic philosophers? Uh, two, two, uh, two different groups, very different teaching, um, but you may find yourself in one of these two even, interestingly enough. Okay, the Stoics. Uh, the Stoics were all about virtue. Virtue was the goal, the purpose of life, not pleasure. They were very moralistic. They sought to help people to be strong and handle life especially suffering. They, 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 wanted you, they wanted to teach you to handle suffering without caving or without being shaken. And so when, when we say someone is very stoic, what do we mean? You know, they're very calm, they're, they're, they're emotionless. That tends to be what we think of. The stoic teachings did actually produce very intellectually stable people, but they tended to be emotionally detached, right? You're not rattled by pain but you're not seduced by pleasure either. You know who the most famous Stoic probably was? Dr. Spock. Okay, think Dr. Spock when you, or think one of these new uh, rocket mortgage by Quicken Loans commercials where those two are, you know, in their, in their uh, house, you know, and uh, I think we need to find a new house. Yes, where would you suggest we do that? You know, they talk in monotone. It's, it's, it's pretty funny, but Dr. Spock is a, is a great example of what a stoic, what stoic behavior would produce, okay? The problem was, even the Greco-Roman culture didn't find their approach very doable. Real people didn't find that it worked with real life because you're going to have pain and suffering, and to be emotionally detached from that, well, it just doesn't work. So you've got this competing philosophy, the Epicureans. These are the relativists. These are made famous, the most famous Epicurean, or one of them, don't worry, be happy, right? Bob Marley esque kind of stuff here. Find pleasure and pursue it at the avoidance of pain, 
but definitely find pleasure, pursue it. Freedom was an Epicurean uh, mantra, especially sexual freedom. So that should help explain the sexual promiscuity that was rampant in the Greco-Roman world, right? The problem was, for the Epicureans, they tended to be very lonely because you can't sustain the emptiness that results from this way of living that you, you try to find freedom wherever you go, but ultimately, uh, you're, you're not able to sustain it, right? Now, <clears throat> take modern examples of this. You've got the Stoics and the Epicureans, even to today, the spirit of this. The generation of people who fought in World War II tend to be very stoic in their orientation to life because of what they lived through, because of what they had to deal with. You do what needs to be done. You, you deal with suffering as it comes. It's part of life, so you don't get too knotted up about it. You, you pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You get on with it, right? You show up to work. You do your job. You go home. You be loyal. You keep your word. All those kinds of things. But then came the 60s. I can't speak about them. I wasn't there yet, right? I was barely there in the 70s. But you had in the 60s, at least from what I understand and have read, a war that didn't make sense to many people, the civil rights struggle, the sexual revolution, the disco craze, all of that. And the culture began to turn more toward Epicurean or what we call Bohemian, right? A Bohemian lifestyle uh, made popular in, in even like a, uh, like a play like Rent, Okay. Um, and it seems as though that strain has only grown and is at an all-time high. So most of you, if I'm describing Stoics or Epicureans, you're going to say, yeah, America, very Epicurean. The reason you're thinking that is because we have television, we have the Internet, we have all of these ways in which that lifestyle has gotten propelled into popular culture, and so it's very easy to see. And so while we may not live in New York City or London or a major university town, we have Polk State College right across the lake. But we don't think of ourselves as a university town, right? We breathe the same cultural air as everyone else. One writer has said, culture is how you define reality. And so what Paul experienced in Athens is very much what we experience every day. So why is he there? Okay, what's he doing? Well, here's the thing. He believed, here's the challenge for us, he believed that the gospel had the capability to challenge the most profound and the most widely held cultural trends and beliefs of the day. Do you believe that? you believe the gospel has the capability to challenge the most profound and widely held trends of the day? Well, look at verse 17 again. What's he doing every day in the synagogue and in the marketplace? The uh, English Standard Version says he's reasoning. In the Greek, it means he's dialoguing. That's the word. He's dialoguing. Every day. Of course he's there to share the gospel with those who don't know, with those uh, who don't worship Jesus. He believes that the gospel can literally be taken into the public square to reach individual hearts and see individual conversions. Yes, of course, but he also believes that the gospel can literally be taken into the square to engage the culture itself. And it's not something he's afraid of. Notice where he is. He's right in the middle. The Agora was in the middle of, of the city. He's right in the middle of Athens. He's not off in a corner, but he's not wearing a sandwich board that displays a Bible verse across the front, walking up and down the main drag, yelling at people either. Notice he's not doing that. What's he doing? He's reasoning. He's dialoguing. It means he's talking. It means he's listening. He's asking questions. 
And then when you, when you ask questions, what, by definition, do you have to do when the person responds? You have to listen. That's what he's doing again and again and again. But notice some of the things that he does. He sees that the city was full of idols, verse uh, 16. Uh, one historian says, at the time of Nero, the city of Athens had some 30,000 public statues or public altars. Superstition was very normal. Another historian made a joke. He said, it's easier to find a god in Athens than a real man, right? Because it was so, it was everywhere. Everywhere there's evidence of worship. His spirit was provoked. He doesn't leave disgusted at how screwed up the people are. Notice he doesn't do that. He plunges himself, he immerses himself into the marketplace. And the looking, as he walks up and down, as he engages with people, it look, the looking that he does leads him to compassion. The, 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 the love of the people of Athens is fed by his eyes. And of course, he's following the pattern of his Savior, right? He's following Jesus' pattern. That's what Jesus did over and over again. Thus, for Paul, the words he uses, the dialogue he enters into, the the confronting he does in his address, which we'll get to in a minute, it's all flowing from compassion. His His spirit's provoked. He sees that the city was full of idols. He passes along and observes the objects of worship. Thus, he concludes, these people are in every way very religious. That's what he says in verse uh, 22. And in order to do that, listen, in order to do that, a person has to be comfortable being exposed to all of that. A person has to be patient enough to listen to other people talk. What's on their minds? What makes them tick? All of that takes time, energy, effort, patience. He comes to that conclusion after observing and considering, and he says, men of Athens, I perceive, I have I've gained a perception as I have watched and talked and reasoned with people. Now, where's his reasoning take him in terms of what he says? He's thoughtful and caring enough to find points of agreement. And so let's move to uh, the sermon, the address rather here. What can we learn from what he says and what he doesn't say as well as how he says it? Well, if you have a Bible, if you don't, it's no big deal. But if you do, you go back to the beginning of the chapter, verse 2 where he goes into a synagogue of the Jews in Thessalonica, and Paul went in, Luke says, and on three Sabbath days, not just random days, three Sabbath days, he reasoned, same word, dialogued, with them from the Scriptures. Does he, does he quote the Scriptures in this address in Athens? No. We'll get more on who he quotes in just a minute, but he, he doesn't quote the Scriptures because he's talking to people don't have the scriptures. They don't believe the scriptures. The scriptures aren't authoritative for them. That means nothing to them. So notice that. Keep that in mind as we, as we go through. He's very biblical, yet he doesn't quote the Bible. Now, Paul attempts to show the Athenians that on the basis of their own statements, idolatry, in the sense and in the expression you find it in that time period, right, it's very different today, and yet very much the same, Uh, The idolatry was wrong, it was inconsistent, it didn't make sense. And what he does is he begins with their question, their premise, their beliefs. He calls attention to this altar that's addressed to an unknown God, okay? Look there in uh, verse 23. I passed along, I observed the objects of your worship, I found this altar with the inscription. He begins with that question, and then he says, let me tell you about who you were made to worship. 
Let me describe this God to you. You think he's unknown, but in reality, he can be known. And the only reason he can be known is because he has made himself known. Now, let me read from uh, verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Isn't that a great phrase? I don't, I don't have, really understand what he means, but it's a great phrase. Yet he's not actually far from each one of us. Paul gives his listeners a picture of God that is so beyond anything they've imagined or thought of. He's telling the Athenians, you worship something you think is unknown. He's actually bigger than you could possibly imagine. He's amazingly great and powerful. He's worth worshiping. That's what worship means, worth-ship. He's worth worshiping. And this is one of the massive differences between the real God, the true God, and the hundreds of gods in the, 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 Greek, the Greek and Roman catalog of all the gods and goddesses they had. All the various gods and goddesses were worshipped. They were given sacrifices because you needed something from them. Worship was a means to an end. It wasn't an end in and of itself. You hear that? It was a means to an end. It was not an end in and of itself. And so they, the gods of the Greeks and the Romans were invented in the image of them. Read the myths. They got jealous. They were sexually promiscuous. They acted like children and adolescents half the time. You, you remember the myths from, from high school? Uh, we, we've all at least read uh, one or two of them, and we would laugh at them oftentimes because the gods and goddesses were made in the image of man. But this God, Paul is describing, is so wonderful and so glorious, he says you worship him for him. Um, a Christian writer named Evelyn Underhill said, if God were small enough to be understood, he wouldn't be big enough to be worshipped. So true, right? Paul says the true God made the entire world, the heavens and the earth, so does it make sense that you could contain him in a temple or any other structure for that matter? Why would he need food to eat? Why would you need to offer him food, take it to his temple or her temple? He made everything, everything you can see and touch. He's the author of even the breath you're taking at this very moment. So does it make sense to you that he actually needs anything? Not only that, Paul says God is not consigned to one area, one tribe, one nation. He's not just the God of the sea or crops or wisdom or war. The true God is God of all those things. He's the Lord of every nation of mankind, bigger than your country or your people group, but he's also made himself known. He says he wants to be sought. Look at verse 27. Just sit with verse 27. That they should seek God. He's done all these things that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him. He's a lot closer than you think, Paul says. The God who made everything is also the God who's not far. And then he says, in him we live and move and have our being. Is that a true statement? Yes, absolutely that's a true statement. The only problem is Paul's not quoting the Bible or any Christian document for that matter. He's quoting a hymn to Zeus. That, that blows my mind. He's quoting a hymn to from Zeus, and then he follows with a quote from a Stoic poet. 
Paul has studied Athenian culture and is so well-versed enough in their culture, so he shows them the reality is they have a sense of God. They write about him. The problem is, it's not in Zeus they live and move and have their being. It's the one true God. He's not... He's not trying to prove the existence of God. He's trying to show them they already know he exists. The inscription on the altar, verse 23. Philosophy, verse 28. Poetry, verse 29. And quoting modern-day philosophers and poets should serve as proofs that secular people today know. Still today, you and I can do this very same thing as we, as we reason as we dialogue, they know something deep down about the way we're living isn't right. Something's wrong with the world and maybe even with them. And so as you read and as you consider and as you dialogue, especially with those who aren't Christians, assuming you do that, hard to do, sometimes challenging. We certainly don't have very good uh, models of it in our culture, especially these times of every four years. You could tackle any number of subjects, but let's confront two, right? Idolatry and identity. Those are the two I want to look at. So like Paul, we want to find agreement points, but also expose the insufficiency of the answers that the culture is giving people. So we, we really are worshiping beings. Look at verse 22. Paul says, I perceive in every way you are very religious. Okay? We live in a time where people will say things like, I'm not religious. I'm glad that works for you. I'm just not religious. No, no, everybody's religious. Bob Dylan says, here I go. Bob Dylan says, you're going to have to serve somebody. You're going to, I mean, he, he just got the Nobel Prize for crying out loud. This guy is a genius, according to the Nobel Committee. You're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Or David Foster Wallace, who was a novelist, uh, self-proclaimed kind of agnostic atheist guy, uh, went into a deep depression uh, toward the end of his life and committed suicide in 2008. But he says, here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. Okay? Now listen, there's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what we worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type of thing to worship, be it JC, you could go go with that, start calling him that uh, in your, you know, community groups and stuff, that'd be funny. Um, Be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan mother goddess or the four noble truths or some other set of ethical principles is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. This guy is not a Christian but he is spewing truth like, I mean, it's crazy what he's saying. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified in myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. These two men know everybody worships. Neither of these men claim to worship the one true God, but they both know everybody worships. Now, we have a severe identity crisis uh, in our culture, 
and humanity has always struggled with this. So let me quote from RuPaul. Yes, RuPaul. I asked Joe Ragsdale, do you know who RuPaul is? He replied, no, the name rings a bell, but I'm not sure who that is. I was like, oh, Joe, come on. But uh, anyway, look up who RuPaul is when I'm done. Because I don't want to give away who he is or what he's been made famous for, although I'll probably give it away with what he says. But this is fascinating. I heard an interview with him on the radio a few weeks ago, and I wrote this down as soon as I got to the office. This is fascinating what this man says. He's now like 56, 57. He says this, you're born naked, and the rest is drag. That's, you might find that funny, but I, that's profound. He says, drag is what you put on after the shower. We're all playing these roles, you know. Drag at its core is about challenging the whole idea of identity. It, it actually mocks identity, he says. It frees young people who are drifting aimlessly, struggling to fit in, to find their tribe and live their life without buckling under the pressure of society. What does that create in people? Profound insecurity. Because they're never quite sure who they are. They find their tribe, and yet, and yet. Let me quote from another uh, poet who said basically the same thing, only he's a lot more kind of tame. All the world's a stage. Recognize this one? And all the men and women merely players. They all have their exits and their entrances. And one man in his time plays many parts, his acts being seven stages. Who said that? Not RuPaul, William Shakespeare. Or Bill, as some people like to call him. Right? Let's not miss, though, the way Paul finishes, okay? I just wanted to quote those people to you to show you, in, in culture today, this is going on. These issues are still being discussed, and yet... Secular people really do know that something's not right. And so we have to find points of agreement as we challenge, as we confront. Let's not miss the way Paul finishes, verse 30 and 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, he says, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance or proof to all by raising him from the dead. He does the confrontation at the end. He calls them to change. He calls them to turn away from their idols. He calls them to turn to the living God, the one who made the heavens and the earth, and yet the one who is not far from each one of us. In fact, in the person of Jesus Christ, God has become what? What do we call Jesus, particularly at Christmas? Emmanuel. God with us. In fact, he walked and talked with us face to face, and he says, leave your idols, follow me, Find all that your heart desires in me. Fill the holes, fill the emptiness, fill the loneliness with me, and then you'll know peace, and then you'll know security, and then you'll know satisfaction because you know me. Paul says the ultimate proof that God is who he says he is is the resurrection. The resurrection means this life isn't all there is. The resurrection means we can really have hope in the face of death and disease and depression. And Paul points, notice what he does. He points to the supernatural, not the natural. He points to the supernatural when he gets to his proof of God's existence in front of this audience. And this is the point at which they stop him because it's the most ridiculous part of Christianity. It's the most outrageous claim Christianity makes. A guy who was dead came back to life. And because it is, the embrace of it can only come supernaturally. 
Holy Spirit has to reveal and convince you of this. I can't. Paul couldn't in this day. No one could. Not the most articulate, amazing preacher, speaker, book, anything can do it. Holy Spirit has to do it. But that's why Paul can be so bold. And it's why we can too. The work isn't ours to do. It belongs to God. So let me finish with the lessons. And I want to give you three of them. The first one is... Uh, we learn here winsome engagement with the culture. Not cursing, not coddling, but compassionate confrontation. As I said a minute ago, it's not standing on the street corner yelling. It's not telling everyone that it's okay because it doesn't matter what you believe. It's dialoguing. It's listening so as to understand. It's spending enough time with people of the culture and in the culture to ask good questions, and you can't be scared to do that. If you are, you'll never do the work that Paul does here. Can you dialogue with those who disagree with you? Not listen so that when they're done, you can give them all of the answers and they can see it all over your face. I'm waiting for you to stop talking so I can begin talking. That's not dialoguing, right? Can you you dialogue with those who disagree with you? Christians, are you comfortable taking your faith into the marketplace of ideas? But the question comes for those of you here who are not Christians or don't consider yourself to be, have you experienced Christians in your workplace or in the public square or in the marketplace in this way? Because most of what is modeled for us is not this. The second lesson we learn is that there's a scandal that Jesus brings. Either Jesus was who he says he was or he was an imposter. He was a liar. You see the responses to Paul. Some heard the resurrection and they mocked. Others said, let's keep talking. I'd like to hear more about this. And then some joined him and eventually came to faith, among whom were a member of the Areopagus, which was like the intellectual elite of the elite of the elite club. And one of those guys came to faith. What a miracle. Uh, Let me quote from the misfit, uh, who was a character in Flannery O'Connor's story, A Good Man is Hard to Find. Okay, this is Flannery O'Connor riding through a guy who uh, kidnaps this family and, well, I don't ruin the story for you. Go read it. It takes like 15 minutes to read. Anyway, the misfit says this. Jesus was the only one who ever raised the dead, and he shouldn't have done it because he's done thrown everything off balance. If he did what he said, then it's nothing for you to do but throw everything away and follow him, and if he didn't, then it's nothing for you to do but enjoy the few minutes you've got left the best way you can, by killing somebody or by burning down their house or doing some other meanness to them. No pleasure but meanness. Talk about truth. If he is who he says he is, then you don't have any other choice but to throw everything away and follow him. But if he's not, then eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow you might die. And the third lesson is that Paul saw the brokenness of Athens and he compassionately confronted their culture, immersing himself in order to share the gospel. He risked their ridicule and their mockery, which he did receive. But of course, who's he following after? His Savior. The one whose compassion and love drove him to the cross. The one who also received mockery and Ridicule, But the famous words from the Gospel of John, we read them earlier in the Assurance of Pardon, they remind us that it wasn't to condemn that Jesus came. Why did God send his Son into the world? John three seventeen. 
not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Compelled, convicted, come to trust because of the beauty of his life. Because no one has ever lived more beautifully than that before. So how do we become people of compassionate confrontation? Like Paul, we have to have known, we have to have tasted Jesus' compassion in coming to save us. How do you become a person who can risk being mocked and ridiculed? Well, like Paul, you have to have known Jesus Christ risen from the dead. And if Jesus did what he said, we have no other choice but to throw everything away, like the misfit said, and follow him. Following him, we can endure anything because he endured all of it for us. So let's pray and ask that God would do that work in us as we do our work of engaging in the culture he's placed us in. Lord Jesus, we thank you for coming. We thank you for coming in flesh and blood. We thank you as uh, one Bible translator puts it, uh, you became flesh and you moved into our neighborhood. Uh, You became one of us. You walked with us and talked with us. You observed our objects of worship. And you compassionately confronted us about the things we needed to turn away from and turn to the one who made us, the one we were made to worship, the one who's worth worshiping. And so we thank you for that great work of salvation and rescue that you didn't come to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through you. And we pray that you would make us people just like you, who understand, who dialogue, who listen, who observe and who compassionately confront with the truth, ultimately, that the hope of this life and the next is the resurrection that is true. Uh, Lord Jesus, come and do that work by the power of your spirit, we pray in your name. Amen. Uh, Amen. Amen. Uh, God is not confined to this room. Uh, You don't come here to get him, offer up stuff to him, hope that, uh, you know, everything goes well as you leave this place. Uh, But as you go from here, he's here, yes. But as you go from here, he goes with you. Uh, Unlike any of the gods that they made all the way back then or that we make today. Uh, He's the one true God. And as we sang both of those last two songs, in his greatness and in his coming as Jesus Messiah, uh, he is great and he is good. And so as you go, he goes with you. And this last word, this benediction, is the promise Uh, It's the stamp, the guarantee that that is true. So receive it as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.